good to see you here at the five o'clock service. And um, we're, we're coming near to the end of this series that we've been looking at that I've entitled Jesus the Cell Leader. And what we've been doing is basing our teaching on this book that you can still get hold of from our book table called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Dr. Robert E. Coleman. And what he does is it's a remarkable study. He looks at the Gospels in particular and examines the method and strategy of Jesus. He didn't just, Jesus didn't just, after going into the wilderness and facing the devil, he didn't just then go off and preach wherever, do whatever, heal whatever. He had a plan and a purpose. And we've been looking at that, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Next Sunday will be the last in this series. But just to let you know what will be taking place here at the 5 o'clock service in July and August. We're going to be doing a series that I've been looking forward to, to uh, doing for quite a long while. Um, we're going to be looking at um, what, what well, the title is called Family Matters. Family Matters. And throughout July and August, we're going to be spending time looking at what the Bible teaches about marriage and family. Lots of people have got their own opinions on what marriage is and who should get married and who shouldn't get married and all these types of things and, and who should be parents and who shouldn't be parents. Well, what we're going to do is we're just going to simply say, well, what does the Bible say? You're welcome to your opinion. I'm welcome to my opinion. But is there a clear opinion in the Bible about such matters? So we'll be spending time looking at what the Bible teaches on marriage. What actually is marriage. There's a total confusion today about what marriage is. About is, is, is marriage for male and female? Is marriage for female and female? Is, what's the purpose of marriage? Is, is marriage just about romance? Is, is marriage for, for lifelong? What part does marriage have in the production of children and the role models of children? What, so many different opinions across the world. But what does the Bible actually teach about that? Also, what about the roles in the family? What is the role of husband and wife? Is there a role? Uh, can they reverse their roles? Do they even have roles at all? Does the Bible teach us about roles in marriage, husband and wife? What about father and mother? Does the Bible teach us that a father has a particular role in a family, and a mother has a particular role, or, or doesn't it really matter and they can choose? We're going to be looking at that. We're going to be looking at other issues that spin off from this. We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about divorce. Uh, what does the Bible say about divorce? Can you not be divorced under any circumstances at all? Or what are the circumstances? And what about people that have gone through the turmoil of a, of a divorce? Is there a second chance for them? Well, there is, but, you know, is there a second chance? Can they get married again? What does the Bible teach you about that? What about God's burden for broken families? What about single parents? You know, single parents are very, very close to the heart of God. Widows and orphans. And, and, what, and, and what about child, raising children? So it, it's going to be a, a good, solid teaching series for the next two months. And we're really going to get into, into it. It's not going to be pop psychology. It's going to be, what does the Word say? What does the Bible teach us? Then at the 2.30 service, it's going to sort of like dovetail in, in July and August with what we'll be doing here at the 
at the 5 o'clock service because the 2.30 service is going to look biblically but more practically about how to have what a godly relationship is. So, for example, through the month of July at the 2.30 service is going to be looking at, at such topics as courting and dating and and when do you know you're ready? And, and how do you find out that, that this is the right person for you to court or date? Or do you court, do you date? All these things are going to be looking after. When you do begin to see if this person, do you just date for the fun of it? Or are you looking for marriage? And what does that mean in practice? And what, what, is, what is a godly boyfriend? What is a godly girlfriend? Is there such a thing as a godly boyfriend and girlfriend relationship? If so, what, this is, what the guidelines the scriptures give us. And that, that's going to be, these sort of issues are going to be in July. And then the 2.30 in August is then going to talk about marriage. So in other words, from seeking the right partner for marriage and going through the courtship process, the second month will then talk about, okay, now what about engagement? Is there a difference between courting someone and then being engaged to them? What difference does engagement make? Make. In fact, the engagement period is a very important period in the course of a relationship. It's not just a nice shiny ring, ladies, on, 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 a, on a thing, uh, gentlemen, having to get that nice shiny ring. It's not just a shiny ring. It's a, a whole new level of relationship for p- final preparation for marriage. And then we'll be looking at some of the, the strong emphases and principles of a strong marriage. So, Right through July and August, we're going to have this strong teaching and ministry, both practical and theological, about marriage, the family, and relationships. Just letting you know so that you don't turn up on one Sunday and think, oh, oh, I've just seen the Revival Times. A whole new two-month series is taking place at the 5 o'clock and the 2.30. But back to today, as I've said, we uh, only have two more Sundays in this, and uh, we've been looking at the ministry that Jesus modeled when he was in the Gospels. And not many people have taken time to look at how Jesus modeled ministry. We often very much focus on, oh yes, Jesus healed the sick and he cast out demons and he preached the Gospel and he taught. And and we focus on the sort of power aspect and that ministry aspect of the Lord. And that's absolutely fine. But you know what? His major strategy for those three years of ministry. I mean, if someone told myself or someone told you, Gabriel, that you've got three more years of ministry, you've got plenty more years, but if someone told you that you've got three more years of ministry, I'm sure you'd sit back and think, what am I going to do in those three years? I'm going to have to, there's things that I would normally do in the course of ministry, which would be fine. I'm not going to do those anymore because I've got three years. So what am I going to do in those three years? So think about Jesus Jesus only had three years of ministry. And so, because it was only three and he knew it would be short, every moment count. Every moment count. Every minute. He couldn't afford to waste a month just getting by. He had to think strategically. Why am I spending time? Who am I spending time with? Where am I spending? What am I going to do? And do you know what? Everything that Jesus did was planned. It was the plan of the Father. It was a schedule First thing he'd do every morning is just check with the father if they were on schedule, if the plan had changed for today or what was going on. He was sensitive. And when you look at Jesus' ministry for those three years, with everything that he did and the amazing, marvelous 
miracles and acts of mercy, his major attention was on his cell group. Now I'm using a modern word, but you know, his cell group, what I mean by that is 12. That was his major focus of those three years. In fact, as you go through the Gospels and you, you get nearer to the end of Jesus' life, you especially see this in John's Gospel, the nearer that Jesus got to the end of his life, the more he focused on his 12 and the less he was found with the multitudes. In fact, when, when he was at the peak and pinnacle of his ministry and the multitudes literally wanted to make him king, he was riding the crest of the wave of popularity. Uh, he said, he, he wasn't like, I've made it, I've made it in the ministry. He was deeply concerned. It says he was moved with the compassion when he saw the thousands and thousands of people that he was now ministering to. He wasn't like satisfied. On the contrary, he was extremely dissatisfied by the ministry that he had to the multitudes. He was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He realized that just because you have a mass congregation, it doesn't actually mean anything. Because the crowds can go, come and the crowds can go. And in a, natural, in a natural sense, the only really way you can keep the crowds, unless you move into discipleship, the only way you can keep the crowds is to please the crowds. And if by the end of Jesus' life, the crowds were not being pleased. And so Jesus said, they're like sheep scattered without shepherds. And that's Matthew 9. And then Matthew 10, it's then when he called his 12 together and said, go and do the work of the ministry. He was preparing his 12 as 12 shepherds that would multiply other leaders and shepherds. Jesus understood that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that thousands and thousands of people to come into the kingdom was fine, but his goal was discipleship. He didn't say, go into all the world and build congregations of multiple thousands. He did not say that. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, teaching them, baptizing them. Now, if that means we have congregations of thousands, fantastic. But are those thousands being discipled? Are they having an opportunity to in, be involved in the primary ministry that Jesus had? Personal evangelism, one-on-one, -on -one, groups of people together. Did they have that opportunity? And that's what we're seeking to do in Kensington Temple, to give everybody an opportunity, not just to be part of the crowds. That's wonderful. The crowds are welcome, and people are welcome to sit in the crowds as long as they want. But our goal is that they will not just be part of the crowds, but they will be part of a small group that where the work of discipleship will be really worked out. And we know that this was the plan because we see it in the, the Acts of the Apostles. When those crowds were brought into the kingdom by Peter on the day of Pentecost, they weren't just left as crowds. We find very soon in the book of Acts that they met the crowds in the temple courts. Thousands could meet there, that's true, daily. But also from house to house, they broke bread. They broke down the teaching of God into discipleship groups. This was Jesus' focus. When he left his church, it was a very small church. For a man who commanded thousands and thousands of thousands of people on the Sermon on the Mount and all over the place, he left a very small church. 
In fact, there was only 120 of them active before the day of Pentecost. Even the 500 or so that he'd seen in one, as raised from the dead, saw them in one group. Many of them couldn't take the daily prayer meetings that were going on, and, and people fell away. And so Jesus left an active church of 120,000. But that church was ready to multiply, had been trained with the principles of God. The 12 were at the center of that 120 core group. So that when Pentecost came in that day and 5,000 men and all the women and children on top of that swept into the kingdom, there was a core group that could rapidly expand, a core leadership that could rapidly expand and take the apostles' teaching and doctrine and the breaking of bread right into people's homes, right into people's families. So this is why it's important. We've been looking at different aspects of Jesus' ministry to his 12. Not that he was just interested in 12 men. He had a wider ministry of 70. But he understood that the 12 men, that's what he was putting the whole of the future of the kingdom on. He ministered to them because in them he saw the seeds of multiplication. He saw the seeds of greatness. He saw that in those 12 men, the future of thousands and then millions and billions of Christians through the ages will be based on this cell group. And so this is why it's so important. We looked at beginning uh, Jesus' selection. We looked at how he chose this leadership team and what he was looking for was very different to what we might be looking for. He, he didn't go, did he, for um, the great priests and the great rabbis or he didn't go and poach from the great Bible schools of the day, Hillel and Shammai, where all the up-and-coming Pharisees and Uh, He didn't go and say, I'll take the best of the crop. He didn't go to the priestly order, to the Sadducees and say, give me your best young blood and I'll I'll use them. He didn't do that. No, he went to, to the people that seemingly didn't have anything. He went to the fishermen. He went to people that everybody hated, like the tax gatherers, like Matthew. But he saw certain things in them and there were certain principles of why he selected them Um, and why they followed him. They had a burning passion for God and for a move of God. They had a burning passion that the status quo would not remain. That's why they left their houses and wives and families to follow him and their businesses. They had a burning passion for, for, that the status quo would change. Many, some of them had even been John the Baptist's disciples in a revival movement. Also, they were willing to be taught, probably the greatest emphasis there. They were willing to be taught. Many times, they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They argued amongst themselves. They had a lot to learn. But you know what? In the end, they learned it. In the end, they learned it. We looked at association. One of Jesus's key principles in his cell group was that these people would be with him that they would get to know one another, that they would be friends and associates and colleagues in the ministry. He didn't meet with them once every so often, but they did everything together. And that was one of his prime ways of preparing them. Consecration. He called them to be consecrated. means to be separated, to be singular of purpose. He co- he, there was, the next one was impartation, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago where he imparted to them. It wasn't just sitting in a lecture hall teaching them. Well, it wasn't that at all. But what it was was impartation and the importance of the Holy Spirit 
And the importance of the ministry that Jesus had was imparted into their lives. They received the Holy Spirit and they received gifts and impartations that they didn't have before. And then demonstration. Jesus demonstrated, and we looked at this um, last time I was with you, that it wasn't enough just to talk. He showed them, and it was like show and tell. He showed them how to heal the sick. He showed them how to cast out the devil. He showed them how to preach the gospel. He showed them these things before he then sent them out on their missionary um, endeavors. And now where we come to is... um, is two things we're going to look at, delegation and supervision. Delegation first. I mentioned that, that, that we were talking about demonstration. Jesus wasn't just saying, do as I say. He was saying, do as I do. Now, all these principles, we're looking at the principles of Jesus' cell leadership life and his ministry, but we can apply many of these principles to our lives, not only in following Jesus personally, but also in our ministry to others, whoever we're discipling or being discipled by. And here was demonstration. Jesus didn't just sit there and say, do this, do the other. He demonstrated to them how. He said, look at me. I am the model. And Jesus is the model. He is the model. He's the perfect model But we don't get discouraged looking at the perfect model. We get encouraged looking at the perfect model because the Holy Spirit is here to help us. So everything Jesus did, he did perfectly. He's the model. He wasn't saying, I'm the Son of God and none of these things you you can do. Some people, some theologians actually teach that Jesus is not the model for the Christian today. They say that Jesus' uniqueness, and of course he was unique, unique being the Son of God, that we can't expect to do the things that he did or have the same effects that he had because he's the perfect Son of God and we're not. They are mistaken. Jesus was constantly modeling, modeling to others. Uh, He says, what I give to you, I want you to do. He said, I am showing you. Greater works will you do in my name. And so Jesus was consistently modeling. When you see what he asked the disciples to do, he asked the disciples to do exactly what he did. He didn't say, now, the miracles, that's my stuff. The preaching the gospel, that's my stuff. The warfare with demonic forces, that's my stuff. Prayer to the Father, that's my stuff. And you have your own stuff. Don't even try and do what I'm doing. On the contrary, he said, what I do, I want you to do. And so that leads us to delegation. He says, I will make you fishers of men in Matthew chapter 4, 19. That was his goal, that these men, some of them had been fishers of fish, that these men and then women would become fishers of humanity. He was teaching them to fish. I remember as a a young boy, when I was taught to fish, when I lived in the Yorkshire Dales, and we had some wonderful different places that you could fish. You could fish on the rivers, you could fish in the brick ponds, um, you could fish in the uh, the lakes. There There was a lot of places you could fish, a lot of variety. And my father would teach me. But I remember especially my uncle, who would um, sometimes come and visit, 
and he was a, a prize-winning fisherman from the Lake District, and he did sea fishing, and he did uh, freshwater fishing and angling, and he would come, and he'd spend like a whole day with me when he'd come and visit us. He'd just take me out, be just me and my expert uncle, and then we'd go and we'd fish, and when he taught me how to fish, it was always demonstration. Do you know what I'm saying? He said, look, let me show you. This is, this is a special way of tying a hook. He, he would look at the lead weight and say, you put it too near, near to the um, uh, hook, and he'd put it away. He'd show me all types of things of how to use bait and which bait worked. It was demonstration, but it was always delegation as well. And this is what we're talking about, delegation. Delegation. He would then say, right, I've shown you, off you go. Go and do it. And I'd be like, well, can't you do the hook? No, I've shown you, you do the hook. And then he'd be waiting and, I, and he'd be supervising and looking. But I would then do it. I would fish. He would show me and demonstrate. But out of that demonstration always comes delegation. This is an important principle of the Christian ministry. It's the important Christ, uh, principle of Christian leadership. I know we have cell groups here at KT, but you know, in some churches, it's almost like the minister or the professional ministry team, they demonstrate, but they never delegate. If, if in these traditional churches, if you want to help, you, you find out some voluntary capacity, which of course is very helpful, but it could be stewarding, or it could be car park attending, or it could be looking after new people, all these types of things. But there's not much opportunity for the teaching ministry, or the preaching ministry, or the um, prophetic ministry, or the fivefold ministry. That tends to be kept by a few on the platform. And so you see the mighty men and women of God on the platform demonstrating, but there's no real flow of delegation. Whereas what we want is, is we want, yes, not everybody can be on a platform demonstrating, that's correct. But you know, we can demonstrate in the context of our homes, of our cell groups, what we've received ourselves from um, the leadership of the church. We now can bring into ourselves. There is opportunity, demonstration should always lead to delegation. Now, this is important because the last word we're going to look at next week, after delegation supervision, we're going to look at reproduction. Reproduction. And Jesus delegated, demonstrated, delegated, because then he expected his ministry to be reproduced. After all, he wasn't going to give up his ministry when he went to heaven. He was going to multiply it through his body. He expected his body on earth to multiply in many different individuals and congregations and churches right across the world, that there would be a multiplication of the delegated work that he demonstrated to his disciples. And then there would be a consistent continuation of demonstration, delegation, supervision, reproduction. His method was, his method was, was not just unique, his method was for us to follow. So when we see such things as Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7,
we see that they had been they had been looking they'd been he'd they had been looking at Jesus's prayer life and he modeled his prayer life to them and he gave them a model prayer the lord's prayer which of course you can repeat it's a great prayer just to repeat but really Every phrase there is like a door that enters into a whole arena of prayer. Very often in the morning meetings and, and the meetings that we have here, when we come to pray, uh, we will often, well I certainly do, I will often have the Lord's Prayer in my mind and I will move to different sections as I feel led. Very rarely will I, although it's good, we did that with RT uh, this morning, didn't we? we uh, one of the services we prayed the, pr- uh, the Lord's Prayer together. It's good to do that. But when I come to pray normally, when I come to pray in a, in a, in a public service, I'll have the Lord's Prayer in my mind and I will go to whatever section I feel led. I'll often start with our Father in heaven and pray about the Lordship of God and the greatness of God so that people lift their hearts and eyes and go, yes, God is on the throne. Because what's the point praying God to do this, that and the other if people haven't got the throne in mind? They're thinking of how everything's not working or the difficulties and the problems. And then when you pray, God, do your work, it's like, wait a second, let's just clear the air and clear our minds and let's get back to the fact that God is ruling and reigning. Then we can go to, but you know, the daily bread. And so Jesus was modeling this prayer. Everything that he did was was a model. If we go just a bit further in Matthew chapter 10, We've said that the end of Matthew chapter 9, that's where he's got the multitudes. And he's saying, I've got compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Pray for laborers to go into the harvest. Pray to the Lord. And then it says, he called him his 12 disciples. And what did he do? He delegated authority to do what he'd been demonstrating for the last nine chapters, demonstrating to them. He called his disciples and gave them authority. To give authority is delegation. So when we look at this title, delegation, one of the key, key aspects of Jesus' leadership, he delegated, he gave authority. He didn't keep it to himself. It's so important that we give away authority and delegate to those that are ready and to get people ready for that authority. So often what can happen in in ministry is that you you can hit a ceiling in your ministry because you are doing everything and you won't trust somebody else or you think, no, I'll do it, I'll do it. And so what's happening is you're busying yourself doing everything. What's your problem? You're not giving people authority and you're not delegating. And when you don't allow people to rise, if you don't give them authority, now they have to rise and do the job. We're not talking about promoting people that don't deserve to be promoted, don't have the ability yet to be promoted, or don't have the attitude to... Ca- We're not talking about that, but there's, but there's plenty... God will give us people in our spheres where you will disciple, and you get them to the place and say, right, now's the time. I need to give them authority so that I can delegate, so that they can do what I'm trying to model and what the Lord models even better in the Scriptures. You release people. You let people grow, you give them more. Because if you don't, frustration will set in. So here's Jesus, he gave authority to them. To do what? To do what he did over unclean spirits, to cast them out. To heal every disease and every affliction. 
Then it gives us the name of the 12. Then verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing. And then he gives them all these instructions of what to do. But he says, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. Trust God for it. And so he, he sends them out and he's basically saying, go and do what you've seen me do. And I'll give you the authority to do it. What the wonderful thing is, is that God's calling on our lives for the kingdom of God. He's not calling us to do something without showing us what he wants us to do. It's all there in the scriptures. And giving us authority to do it. Authority to do it. He demonstrates. He delegates. He sends out, go into all the world. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. What's that? It's the great commission, but it's also the great delegation. You know what God has called us to do in all the breadth of our calling? I'm not just talking about cells. I'm talking about also God has called you into a specific career or he's giving you specific giftings. One of the emphasis of the church that we're focusing on on a regular basis is what we call the giants, aren't we? The giants of society. And what does that mean? Well, what we're saying is we recognize that God has given people supernatural, spiritual interests in different aspects of society and that we are to help them, to equip them so that they can do the work of the kingdom there. So politics. We've got a number of people involved in politics at KT. We've got a number of people that are interested in politics. So we have our politics forum where we bring people together, where those that are highly skilled as Christian politicians, both in the church and guests that we bring in, come, impact, uh, help, facilitate others. Because some people say, I've been called as a Christian to be in politics. Or we've got other people that right now we're recruiting for teachers and those that are interested in education because God is interested in us modeling Christ and his values in the education. You can't just leave people to get on with it. You've got to help them. You've got to teach them. You've got to bring people in so that they can be mobilized. The same with media, the same with sport, uh, the, the same with health and medicine, which is going to be the next thing that we look at. The same with, uh, um, with higher education and all these types of things that we're going to be looking at and going through in the giants of education. What's that about? It's about modeling, helping. It's the same sort of themes. It's, it's, it's in equipping and delegating, preparing and delegating the kingdom of God in those different areas. That's what we're, we're doing, the delegation of it. Now, the next thing that I want to look at, the second to last, which comes before reproduction, is supervision. Supervision. Jesus supervised his disciples. His teaching rotated between instruction and assignment. This dovetails with what I've been talking about today. He didn't just teach. It wasn't just a talking shop. It's not so much... In in many of the good Bible colleges today... Uh, and theological colleges, there's a lot more activity than there used to be. Sometimes you used to go to certain theological colleges and it was just talk, talk, talk. It was just, you know, think, think, think. And many of the academic teachers, having been to an academic, done an academic theological degree many years ago, um, you know, they could teach theology, but they couldn't do it. 
I mean, they couldn't do it. I mean, they, they couldn't lead a church attend, some of them. I mean, they really couldn't. Their, 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 their actual practical skills or ministerial skills were zero. I think that's why they spent all their time in their ivory towers. Now, there were some absolutely remarkable exceptions, but there was a lot of them there. Whereas today, I think in theological colleges, uh, many of them say, hey, we've got to teach the academics. We've got to get people deep into these issues, but we also need to make practical room for them uh, so that they can, they, they can minister. And Jesus, he gave instruction but he then sent people on assignment. He said, okay, you've got, it. You've got the theory. Now I'm going to demonstrate to you. Now I want you to go out and have a go. And supervision is really important. Because if you just send people off and say, right, you've seen me do it, off you go. And don't supervise what's going on. Then you don't know if, if, if they're growing. You don't know if they're moving in the right way. Supervision is a very important part of discipleship. So if we didn't supervise ourselves, if we just said, do you want to be a cell leader? Yes. Well, you don't need any training. Off you go. Go and do the work. Just do it. Here's the book. People with a passion, read it, do it. And, and if we just left that, maybe a few people would rise to it. But we need to supervise. We need to say, hey, you know, how are you doing? Um, oh, this bit, this bit's good, but that bit's a bit weak and... And, and even recently, we've just done a cell survey. We've done a survey um, about our cell groups. And we've looked at some of the strengths of our cell groups and some of the areas. What we're doing, we're supervising. So we know that our cell groups, by and large, are, are, are extremely valued for the pastoral teaching input that's in them. But one of the areas that we realize that we need to help people is in is to be more effective and more released in personal evangelism, not just out on the streets, but friends and family and colleagues. And what's that? That's come through supervision. Uh, the senior minister actually took time to find out how, how were things, how was the assignment going? How are cells going? He took time to, to look at it, to get feedback from people, to, to get feedback in these surveys, this cross-section, and to say, ah, oh, all right, so this is where we're doing really, really well. And we were doing far better than we thought in many, many areas. And other areas that are, ah, this is the place where we need more input, more help, more encouragement. Well, that's supervision. And so Jesus would do this because he, he would review with his disciples how they were doing. We know this in business and everything that having annual reviews or reviews in your job is a very important part. Because if your job isn't reviewed, you don't know your strong points or your weak points or, or, or what those strong or weak points are perceived as. And you're just going on thinking, am I doing all right here? I, I don't know. I'm not really being supervised. I'm not having a review. Well, G Jesus did this. And um, in Luke chapter 9, you see him Again, sending out the 12 with authority and power to proclaim the kingdom. And they go, go do just what Jesus did, going through villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But then in verse 10 of Luke 9, it says, On their return, the apostles told, them, told him all they had done. You see, there was supervision. It was like, okay, off you go. I've demonstrated I've delegated, I've imparted authority. So now off you go. 
go on assignment. But when they came back, Jesus was interested and they told him all that they had done. They gave him back a report and he took them, took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, the crowds followed him, but you see, Jesus thought, right, now's the time for reflection. You've got out on a mission You've done these things. You've told me about these. We're going to go away for a while because you've been on mission. You've been out on active. You've been out on the battlefield. I I want us to go away. I want us to reflect. I want us to discuss. I don't want us to go. Sometimes what can happen in ministry, if we're not careful, is we're never out of the battle. As soon as one battle's finished, there's not a proper review, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's like from one thing to another, one thing to another, and one thing to another, one thing to another. You know, you get a victory, but there's no time to think about it. You get a defeat, there's no time to reflect on it. It's just out again, out again, keep going, keep going, keep going. It's important when things happen to review. Why? To celebrate what happened. I mean, if something, if a great event takes place, or some, some great break, we need to take time not just to celebrate it by, oh yeah, that was nice. Anyway, tomorrow we start... Wait a second, we need to stop, wait and think about what has just happened. Or or if something doesn't work, we don't just brush it aside or just say, oh well, blame, blame, blame. We have to step back and say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. So this didn't work. Why? Let's reflect. We need to do that in our lives, our personal lives. We need to do that in our Christian lives. Is there proper supervision? I mean, all of these points you can apply to cell groups, but you can also apply them to you personally with God. Association, for example. How close are you to the Lord? Do you associate with his word? I mean, do you associate with Jesus or do you associate with the world? Do you associate with the principles of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness. Are these the things you associate with or do you associate more with the principles of the flesh? Anger, annoyance, uh, jealousy, uh, uh, argument. Who do you associate with? Are you associating with Jesus and his principles? That's the beauty about the three years of Jesus in the Gospels. We can enter into it. It's it's like we've got, (laughs) like today, when you watch on television and and they do these, um, these amazing documentaries. And these documentaries go behind the scenes. So I know they're currently doing a documentary on the Houses of Parliament. So they're right in there in the Houses of Parliament and they're right behind the scenes. And they do these behind the scenes. And you see things you've never seen before. You get right into it. Well, that's what the Gospels are like. I mean, you even get to hear the arguments between the disciples. I mean, if I was, the, if I was one of the disciples, we just had a massive row about who was the best and who, was, who Jesus was going to promote. We'd have this really big row. I'd be like, and then later on I'd be saying, don't put that in the gospel. I mean, it seems that the gospel of Mark, that Mark sat at Peter's feet, it seems, in church history to write Peter. If, I, if I'd been Peter, I'd be like, that bit about me, you know, the bit, the bit where I went, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus went, Human uh, flesh has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. Put that in. Don't put the bit where Jesus called me Satan. Get behind me. That doesn't need to be recorded. That's a little bit embarrassing. 
Anyway, I've been forgiven for that. Do you know what I'm saying? Or, you know that time when I denied Jesus three times? Yeah. I guess you've got to put it in, but don't put it in that it was a young girl. Put it in that it was a big soldier. Don't put it in it was a young maiden. You know, so it's amazing, really, isn't it? The humility of the apostles that even the, the, the inner workings, you know, where if you, if, if you had um, the BBC come in and say, oh, we're going to go behind the scenes, there's things you say, oh, don't, you didn't tape that, did you? We're human beings, aren't we? we that, you didn't tape that bit, did you? That, that doesn't make me look. Could we redo that bit? I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't on my best and stuff. But it's all there in the Gospels to, to form us and to shape us. Jesus, it, this, this supervision was because it was on-the-job training. It really wasn't theoretical. There was, I mean, there's more theology in, in, in the, I mean, forget the Bible, just the Gospels. There's more theology in the Gospels than in whole other religions. I mean, the Gospels are full of the deepest theology that you can, you can, you know, you just can't fathom. I mean, John's Gospel is just incredible. You just, the, just you can't fathom the depths that, that you can that you can go into in these Gospels. So the theology was there, but it was in a practical, ministry-based, on-the-job, assignment, training. It's all about acting. And so he reviewed with them. And other times, when he's reviewed with them, they said, oh, demons being cast out, people getting saved. And, and it was amazing, really, because... Jesus got so excited. I mean, it's amazing to see Jesus excited and, and what that must have been like to see Jesus actually, you know, re, re, rejoicing. And, um, okay, I've got my... Oh, yeah, Luke 10, 21. I think I'll finish on this. Luke 10, 21. So, well, verse 17, it's the 72 return in verse 17 of Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So even there, as he's supervising, he's reviewing, um, he's like, even then he's bringing correction. He's saying, now thank God for the breakthrough. Thank God that you're getting victory over the enemy. But let's put that in context. He's training on the job. What really matters is having your name written in heaven. And then look, look at this, isn't this wonderful? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And the word there for rejoiced gives a picture of leaping with joy. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so Jesus is delegation and his supervision meant that there was review. It's like, well, how are you doing? Don't be a Christian that just stays the same year after year or month after month. 
I mean, are, are you growing? Are, are you growing? Are you, in, are you increasing? Are, is different aspects of your Christian life, are they developing? Is your prayer life developing? Is your ministry life developing? Is your understanding of the Word of God and your reading and your studying developing? Is your character, your Christian character, is it developing? You're only going to know that if you review that or get people close to you to help you review that or to help you go forward. So often Christians just, they reach a certain level and they plateau. They rise and then they hit a ceiling and then they can remain like that for years. Remain like that for years. In Colin's book on people with a passion, he talked one of the great pictures in that book is the picture of us being a thermostat, not a thermometer, right? A thermometer simply takes the temperature that's around it, right? That's 99.9% of Christians today in the Western world. They are simply thermometers. So if they get into a powerful, strong environment of Christianity, then perhaps their spiritual temperature will rise to those that are around them. But you take them out and put it in a a cooler spiritual environment, then their their, their temperature will go. And it's up and down. And uh, in fact, some people, you see, you get two types of Christians. You get people that warm you up for the Lord, set you a little bit more on fire, or you get others that chill, chill you down. So there'll be people in KT, there'll be the chillers and the warmers. There'll be people in KT, and you get around them, you'll, you'll get hot for Jesus. You'll get strong for Jesus. But there'll also be people in our church, because it's like that in every church, you get around them, they'll chill you. They'll cool you down. They'll pull you towards carnality. They'll get you off on stuff that is not appropriate. They'll cool you down. But you see, what we want to do is we want to keep around people that keep us on fire, definitely. But we also want to stop seeing ourselves as thermometers and start being... Thermostats, thank you. Start being thermostats. That's what we really want to be. You want to be what I call self-igniting. I remember speaking to one person, and uh, well, it was a couple, and uh, they'd been at KT many years ago, and now they're living in Cheshire, and they'd gone on missions with us, and a lovely young couple, well, they're not so young anymore, but uh, a lovely couple then, and on fire for the Lord here at KT. And then they went off and ended up in Cheshire in, in a cooler environment where they were. Um, but you know what? They never lost their fire. And when I saw them, I commented, commented on it, and I was talking about how he was doing well in business and how he'd, not, he'd, he'd kept his integrity with all his business. And then, and then he spoke about his wife who's doing an alpha course and everything like that. And I said, well, the thing about your wife is that she is a self-igniter. She, she sets her thermostat on hot every day wherever she is. She's trained herself. And he's the same, but I was just commenting on her. But she's, a, she's got to the place where she's, where, where she's not a thermometer. She is a thermostat. And she says, well, what I do is in the morning, when I get up, I turn myself on my, th- on my thermostat, she says, I turn it to KT hot, which I thought was a nice thing to say because she remembers her time being at KT and they were radical with us when they were at KT going, like I said, to Brazil and stuff. So she turns herself to KT hot. 
And even if she's in a cooler environment, she's going to be setting the temperature. She's not going to be chilled. And so this is what we're looking at today. Well, next week is our, our last five o'clock service. And, and all of this is going to be brought together because when all of these that we've looked at, selection, association, consecration, impartation, demonstration, delegation, supervision, when these things are all working in different levels and different ways in the kingdom of God, that's when we're ready for reproduction, multiplication, and life to flourish out of that. So that's where we're going to end on this series, and then we're going to be starting on marriage and the family. Tonight, 7 o'clock service, Artie Kendall's going to be speaking on his on launching his new book, as you've heard, on wisdom. We're going to have a ministry time at the end, and also it'll be a time if people want Artie to sign their book as a memento. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give opportunity in the foyer for that, but we're also going to be having time where we're laying on of hands and ministering in the spirit this evening. So God bless you and have a wonderful day.